Good evening, everyone. The reading is from Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 1 to 16, and then 25 to 31. So, Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed those who are ill, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched for, to, or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search out for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And then verse 25. <clears throat> I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may, may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. 
I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is God's word. Well, good evening. Let's uh, pray together as we start. Father, you've told us that your word is a lamp uh, to our feet and a light to our path. As we come to another challenging passage this evening, uh, Lord, we pray for that illumination. We pray that you would show us the way that you want us to go uh, in our lives, in our context today. Uh, we pray that you would speak clearly to us this evening, Lord, uh, and that we would hear you. Amen. So one of the challenges whenever we study the Bible is that, yes, God's message is the same at all times. It's the same to all people. But the message is given at a particular time and into a particular society. So that means that sometimes parts of that message are going to be framed in ways that might have made real immediate sense to the people who heard it the first time but maybe aren't quite so immediate for us. We're going to have to do a little bit of work if we're going to understand these things properly. The picture of the shepherd and the flock is a great example of, of one of those things. During the period of history when the Old Testament uh, took place, which is quite a long period, this was a picture that would have been instantly clear to whoever heard it. A lot of them would have been shepherds, um, and those that weren't would probably know some. They were all around. It was that kind of society, that kind of economy. That's probably not the same for us. Most of us aren't working in the fields. We're not depending on raising flocks and very few of the people we know are, if any are at all. So there's a crucial part of God's message through Ezekiel, which is this picture of the shepherd and the flock, that actually we're in danger of missing. We all probably understand that being a shepherd is, is hard work. Maybe it sounds a bit too tough for us if we think about the early mornings or the diseases that might affect the flock. Sheep have a lot of different things um, that they catch. But when this message was first given, being a shepherd was quite a different thing to what it is today. Shepherds didn't have enclosed fields with stone walls um, to keep out the predators or keep the sheep in. They tended to be nomadic. They would move around with their flocks to find the good grazing land. It was also a really, really high pressure job. Sheep were a key part of the food supply, key protein source. If you were a shepherd, your job was to protect the sheep at pretty much all costs. If you didn't, it was going to have consequences really quickly for you, for your family, and very directly for people around you in the town where you lived, because that was a major source of food. There weren't supermarkets. Food wasn't travelling hundreds of miles. If your flock went missing, people in your town went hungry. When the angels appear to proclaim the birth of Jesus, they speak to shepherds. Where were the shepherds? They were out in the fields, watching over their flocks by night. That's what you had to do if you were a shepherd, to make sure that your sheep didn't wander off, to make sure that your sheep weren't picked off by bandits, outlaws or wild animals. You slept out in the fields with the sheep. 
Or when the boy David, who later becomes the king, needs to persuade Saul that he's the right man to fight the Philistine champion Goliath, well, he tells him a little bit about what it's like to be a shepherd in these verses from 1 Samuel chapter 17. When we talk about a shepherd caring for their flock, when we talk about how important that job was, what is involved in that role, that's what we need to understand. It's not just getting up early to feed them. It's not just looking out for their general well-being or leading them to the good grazing land, although it is all of those things. But it also means sacrificing your own comfort to sleep out in the fields. It also means risking your own life, sometimes taking on a bear or a lion to keep the flock safe. That's the context for being a shepherd when the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in our passage today. That's what the original listeners would have understood. And that's why this picture of the shepherd is used throughout the Bible. It was an instantly understandable picture, not just of hard work, although yes, that, but also of self-sacrifice, of putting the interests of the flock ahead of the interests of the shepherd. So let's keep that picture firmly fixed in our heads as we go on this evening. And now that we've got it, let me ask you, are you a good shepherd? Are we good shepherds or are we bad shepherds? With apologies to those of you who heard me say this a little while ago in the morning services uh, when we were talking about Haggai, let me be clear that when we're talking about leaders in our church, we are not just talking about the staff or the elders. Absolutely, yes, those people are shepherds. Our word pastor that we use is the Latin word for shepherd, very directly. But when Jesus tells Peter in John chapter 21 to care for his sheep, to feed his lambs, he isn't just talking to Peter as an early Christian elder or a pastor or the first pope or however it is that, that you think Peter was appointed. He's talking to Peter as an early leader. He's talking to all the leaders in the early church. And actually, lots of us are leading in some way. We have leaders in youth and children's work. We have leaders in Bob and in WOW, in home groups. We have leaders in music. We have leaders in our outreach ministries. And actually, we have informal leaders as well. We might be leading in our families. We might be taking responsibility for meeting a younger Christian and bringing them along. Lots of us are leading. And therefore, we've all got to ask ourselves this question when we're leading, when we're shepherding. Are we good shepherds? The first part of this prophecy in Ezekiel is given to the shepherds of Israel. And the shepherds in this context are all the leaders of Israel. And they are very clearly bad shepherds. This isn't the first time that God's given Ezekiel criticism for the leaders of Israel. In previous visions, he's prophesied against the military leaders. He's prophesied against the priesthood, the spiritual leaders. And he's prophesied against the leader of leaders, the main man, the king. Here we are in verse 8, and God is summarising what he said before, his charge against all of the leaders. They're so bad that effectively his flock has no shepherd. That's how bad they've been leading. What's the result? The flock's been plundered. It has become food for the wild animals. That's what would happen to a flock of sheep if a shepherd didn't do their job. The wild animals, the bandits, the lions and the bears that David fought off would pick off the sheep. And eventually there would be nothing left. 
We know from history that this is a reference to the Babylonian Empire. It's been raiding the kingdom of Judah, um, which at this time is all that's left of the original kingdom of Israel. Babylon's been coming in, raiding, picking off bits of land, bits of wealth, and gradually taking people into captivity, into exile in Babylon. At this point um, in Ezekiel, in the timeline, Jerusalem has fallen uh, and the exile is more or less complete. Why did that happen? Why did God allow that to happen? Well, that's set out in verses two to six. The shepherds weren't acting like shepherds. The shepherds weren't putting the needs of the flock first and sacrificing their own comfort. They were, verse two, only taking care of themselves. Yes, verse three, they were taking all of the comforts that a shepherd was entitled to take. The curds from their milk, the wool for clothes, the best meat. That's okay. They're allowed to do that, provided they're shepherding. But these guys aren't. When a sheep was hurt, they didn't heal them. When a sheep went missing, they didn't go looking for them. Yes, verse four, they ruled the flock as a shepherd's meant to do, but they didn't rule them in the way that a shepherd was meant to do it, self-sacrificially. They ruled them harshly. These kings, military leaders, the priests, they were in it for what they could get, rather than in it for a flock. That's how a bad shepherd behaves, not a good shepherd. So the end result, verse 10, the flock is taken away from them. And God promises that he himself will hold these shepherds to account. He will make them answer for the flock that they've lost. We can't shy away from this. This is a message that we need to hear. It would be really easy at this point in this sermon to make a very vague statement about people who get rich off their ministry. And just leave it there. We could all move on with our lives thinking that this is just about the televangelists or it's just about some theoretical megachurch pastor in Texas with his shiny building and his beamer. But I don't think that's the message we're meant to hear. So let me say something quite uncomfortable. Even in evangelical circles, even among ministers that we might admire, there are bad shepherds. Some of you uh, may have been following the coverage of the investigation of Ravi Zacharias. For those of you who haven't, uh, Ravi was an evangelical Christian minister and preacher. He was hugely successful. He wrote many books. He spoke all over the world. He built up a huge organisation that helped him minister and evangelise. He was what they call an apologist. He wrote amazing defences of the Christian faith. Many of us will have read his books or heard him speak. He did an immense amount of good work. We may personally have been helped by him, by his message. But by the end of his life, Ravi Zacharias was a bad shepherd. An investigation has been conducted into him that's found that he was sexually abusing women in his ministry. This isn't self-sacrifice. He was putting his own desires first. In his case, abusing his position for sex. We're not immune just because we're evangelicals. We're not immune just because we're not in a megachurch. We're not immune because we're not on TV. We're not exempt from being a bad shepherd if our church is growing. We're not exempt from being a bad shepherd if people like our preaching. 
Anyone can be a bad shepherd. It might not be anything quite so dramatic as the riches that the shepherds of Israel were plundering or anything that that Ravi Zacharias did. But how are we leading? When somebody wanders off, which might not mean that they stop coming along to things, it might mean that they're stepping off the path that we know they should be on. Are we taking the time? Are we going after them? Are we bringing them back on? When someone's wounded in the area that we're leading, are we doing what we can to heal them? Are we making sacrifices to tend to God's flock? Or are we tending to God's flock because it suits our own ends? Maybe we enjoy the status. Maybe we like feeling important and needed. Maybe we think that if we're visibly helping with something, then we get a little bit of leeway somewhere else. It might just be that we enjoy being in charge or feel like we're the only ones who really understand how to make this work. Whatever it is, we do have to be on our guard. And all the more so because with us, it's probably not going to be money. It's probably not going to be sexual abuse. It's probably not going to be something big and obvious that other people might see and be able to warn us about. Because we're in a a rural church in North Hertfordshire, it's going to be a little bit of ego. It's going to be doing it to suit our own priorities rather than God's priorities. And then we're going to start putting our needs before those of the flock. Then we're going to move on from self-sacrifice. And then Ezekiel tells us, eventually we're going to answer to God for the damage that we do to the flock. It's a stark message. It's very clear. If we're leading, we need to be putting the interests of the flock before our own. We need to be good shepherds. What about those of us who aren't leading? Well, there's another message here uh, that starts in verse 17. And actually another picture that might not be immediately obvious to us. It certainly wasn't to me when I was growing up. It took an episode of QI, actually, a couple of years ago to point this out. I've always thought of sheep and goats as very different looking creatures. Something like this. But actually, it turns out, if all you can go on is what things look like, it can be really difficult to tell a sheep from a goat. If we were doing this as a service in person, I feel like this would have been quite a fun little quiz. Um, But uh, rather than make you yell at your YouTube feed, I'll just tell you, this is a goat. This is a sheep. This is a goat. This is also a goat. See what I mean? Not so easy to tell them apart, is it? Just by looking. So actually in verse 17, when God gives a message to the flock that he's going to judge between the sheep and the goats, that's not a judgment that's going to be based on what people look like, how they seem to be. Rather than looking at the animals and trying to determine which is which, God's going to look at how they behave. So verse 18, the sheep graze happily, but the goats trample the rest of the pasture. The sheep drink the water, but the goats make it muddy for everyone else. The picture changes in in verse 20 to fat sheep and lean sheep, but the point's still the same. Verse 21, it's the shoving and butting 
that drives off the weaker members of the flock. That's the bad behaviour that the fat sheep uh, are indulging in. So having told the leaders that he's going to hold them to account for what's happened to the flock, God's not going to let off the people, the flock, from responsibility for their own bad behaviour. It's not just the leaders who have acted badly, it turns out. Some of the people of Judah have also contributed to the state that they find themselves in. The goats, the fat sheep. So what have they been doing? Well, that's trickier to answer. This passage is often preached as a rebuke to the rich, with the preacher saying that the sheep who have grown fat must have done so at the expense of everybody else. We can see from elsewhere in Ezekiel that that certainly was something that had happened in Judah. But just as with the rebuke to the leaders, I think we'd be missing quite a lot if we said this was only about money. The sheep, the fat sheep, the goats don't eat all of the grass and leave none for anybody else. They have their fill, but they trample everything else. They're careless. They're selfish. As long as they get fed, they don't care what happens to the rest of the pasture. So I don't think it's just about taking more than you're allowed. When God's people are organised as a single nation, maybe that's what you see in selfish behaviour. Maybe getting rich at the expense of others is the obvious outcome of being selfish. But in church today, it is going to look different. We're not a nation. We're not an economy in that way. But we can still be people who take selfishly. We can still be people who want our own wants and needs to be met and don't care what that does to the church's ability to help everybody else. And we must be clear here, we are all entitled to our share. If you look at verse 18, it's fine that the sheep and the goats both feed on the good pasture. It's fine that the sheep and the goats both drink the clear water. We are encouraged to be fed and watered by our church family in whatever form that takes, spiritual fulfilment, support in hard times. Of course we must take it, but we mustn't be selfish about it. We shouldn't be pushing ourselves to the front of the line. We shouldn't be taking in a way that makes it harder for the church to do its work with other people. We shouldn't be those pushy sheep that are going to put off other Christians who feel less able to stand up for themselves. It's a difficult balance to strike. This isn't easy black and white teaching. We must come to the church for our fulfilment, for our support. That's clear from the Bible. But in, in taking what we need, we must also consider how that plays into the bigger picture. If we were meant to have a list of things to do and avoid doing, then we'd have it. It would be there in Ezekiel. What we're dealing with here is not a tick list. It's our attitude. It's our heart. Are we trying to be a good shepherd? Are we trying to be a sheep? Are we trying to think of the priorities of others as well as our own, before our own? Do we love the flock? That's what matters. That's what matters. It's making sure that our relationship with the church isn't just a selfish pursuit of whatever aspect of it makes us happy, but that we're playing our part in what the church does for everybody. 
because God will judge the bad shepherds. He will judge between sheep and goats, between fat sheep and thin sheep. He will look not just into the outward appearance, but into those thoughts and attitudes, into that selfishness. That's why we need the good shepherd, which is the third thing talked about in this passage. We've spoken about the total failure of leadership in Judah, shepherds who were only in it for what they could get and didn't care about the flock. And even within the flock, we've spoken about humans not being able to live in harmony. When you boil it down, that all just comes back to human nature. We're selfish. All too often, we would rather please ourselves than put the needs of the flock first. And we're far from alone. It just applies to everybody, right? Leaders, members, everybody. But rather than letting us go, God makes this extraordinary statement in verse 22 through to 25. He will save his flock. He will install his good shepherd over us. And that shepherd will lead us in a new covenant. I always enjoy a passage where I don't have to work too hard to find the answer. So I was pleased about this. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So when we see that promise in verse 23, that God will place one shepherd over his flock, we know that the reference there to my servant David means that king in David's line that's spoken about elsewhere. We know that means Jesus. The key word to understand this passage is in verse 25. It's the covenant that God makes with us. That's the Hebrew word shalom. It's translated as peace in every translation of the Bible that I could find. It's not a wrong translation, but the meaning of shalom is really broad. It doesn't just mean not war. It means something more like everything as it should be. We can see a bit of an explanation in the following verses about how big that concept of shalom really is. Shalom includes physical safety, yes. Verse 25, God will rid the land of savage beasts. That's Babylon in the picture that we're working on here. It's any outside influence. Verse 28 expressly says there'll be no plundering by the nations. But shalom isn't just physical safety, it's more than that. It includes the idea of provision. See in verse 27, the trees yield their fruit. The ground yields its crops. Verse 29, no famine, always enough. It also includes some element of of standing, almost reputation. Look at verse 27 again. God's people will be rescued from their slavery. Verse 29, they won't bear the scorn of the nations. Finally, and most importantly, shalom includes an element of relationship with God. In verse 30, God promises that his people will know that he is with them, that they are his sheep and he is their God. In the song, uh, In Christ Alone, we sing about when striving cease. That's how I think about shalom. When we don't have to strive anymore, against each other, when we don't have to strive anymore against nature, when we don't have to strive anymore against our own failings that cut us off from the relationship that God wants to have with us. 
That's shalom. That's the covenant of shalom that God is promising here. Restoration. Relief. Rebuilding. You can see the references in verses 12 and 13 to God bringing his people out from wherever they are and restoring them to the land. And clearly the contemporary uh, listeners would have understood this to mean going back to Judah, going back to the land of Israel, going back to Jerusalem. And indeed that does happen. But here's an example of where not being the original readers, listeners, gives us much greater insight. We know when we look at this, when we see the discussion of God's people being drawn together from every land into one place, that it ties in exactly with the vision of heaven in Revelation. Yes, we know some of this blessing now, some of this covenant of shalom. But reading that description through, there's no real doubt, I don't think, that what's being described there is the paradise that is to come. When God remakes everything. That's why we need the Good Shepherd to lead us there. That's what's on offer. God sees our selfishness. He sees that it stops us treating our Christian brothers and sisters as we should. He sees that it stops us leading as we should. We are just too concerned with our own priorities. And yet, God offers us this covenant. God offers us shalom. God offers us paradise. Everything as it should be. And all we have to do is follow the Good Shepherd. If that's something that you're thinking about, please do get in touch with one of the elders here and let us know what we can do to help you. Do you want to talk to somebody? Do you want to be in a bigger group that that discusses these things? How best can we help you to look into these claims? How best can we help you get to know the Good Shepherd? There's a story that Jesus tells about the deep joy that the shepherd feels when he finds a single lost sheep. We would love to help you be the sheep that he finds and the source of that joy.